Hey, welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. My guest today is PJ Pereira, founder and creative chairman at Pereira Odell. PJ is an advertising and entertainment pioneer and one of the world's most influential creatives. He was named the top CCO in Adweek's Creative 100. He was recognized by the Creativity 50 and 4A's 100 People Who Make Advertising Great. His agency is credited with the creation of the first ever social film, The Inside Experience, for Intel and Toshiba in 2011. Its follow-up, The Beauty Inside, became a triple Grand Prix winner and the first piece of advertising to win an Emmy against traditional TV programming. In 2016, Pereira Odell helped the brand NetScout achieve an official selection at the Sundance Film Festival with Werner Herzog's Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World, which was named in Esquire's top 10 best nonfiction films of that year. He served on multiple Can Lion juries, including three jury presidencies. Beyond advertising, PJ is also a best-selling novelist. In 2015, his book trilogy, Gods of Both Worlds, spent a month as the number one novel in his native Brazil. In 2017, he launched his fourth novel, The Mother, the Daughter, and the Lady Spirit. He also spearheaded and co-authored The Art of Branded Entertainment, the first ever book written by a Can Lion jury. He served on the boards of the Ad Council and the One Club. And between all of that, he somehow found time to earn two black belts. This is the prolific PJ Pereira and I talking to ourselves. You know, my favorite, like, boiled down little gem of wisdom is this idea that you are what you pay attention to. And so it's – especially for someone as I've researched you who's so prolific and who's done so many things simultaneously. Mm-hmm. It's just – to me, it's less about like, you know, where is your percentage of energy and more about how present are you when you're confronting the things that you're organizing your day through. So when you're a father, if you're on your phone, looking at your phone and thinking about work while you're being a father, then you're not being a father. You, you should you – should, you might as well be at work. All of these things blend into each other. And if you're at work – and you're resentful of your work because it's tearing your family apart. Yeah. You can't be the best entrepreneur, and so yeah. yeah. Um, and it's different when you when you're an employee and when you're the owner. In a certain way, I've, I, I people come to me to ask for advice. It's kind of, I'm going to build an agency, and what do you, I, I, my advice usually is don't. If you're if you have a if you're questioning if, it's probably a no because it's not as as glamorous and f- freeing as people think it is. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to be my own boss. No, you're going to turn, instead of having one boss, you're going to have, everyone is going to be your boss. Every employee, every client, every everything, everyone is going to be your, your boss and you're going to be the one they're going to have to manage that, to juggle all those bosses and your personal life and the things that are important to you. In in my case, it's kind of my my... Is my family, is my martial arts uh, activities, my writing activities, and I have to juggle all of them and find a way to make it work. These people put their faith in you, and you put their faith, they, you yeah. put your faith in them, and you have a responsibility to each other. And when you lose a client, whether it's your fault or it's not your fault, these people's lives are not a dress rehearsal, right? And it's like they have wives and they have kids, and they love their wives and they love their kids and husbands just as much as you love yours. And this is, affects people's lives. And so you succeed together. and. Do you remember a point in the in the sort of foundation of the company or an early success where some of that anxiety around that particular stress started to go away when you started to say, you know what, this is working. I'm not – I don't feel like every decision holds the balance of everyone's fate necessarily. 
Ah, or does that never end? <laughs> I, it never ends. It never ends, to be honest. If, like, there's always, you, you're always measuring the impact of what you're doing. And because and, we have the, the we, we work in a very romantic industry, right? We have all these romantic ideas of what, what creativity should be or what, how, how bold, how, what boldness is. And, and when you're there and, and the last decision is yours and you have to, to decide if you're going to turn left or right, you have to measure the consequences and, and it feels like, oh, that's easy. You just go for the right thing to do. And then sometimes the right thing to do for what you believe that the business is going the direction or the, the company or the work and everything, you look to the other side. It's like oh, That may mean that I'm putting at risk the job of, of five people who, who provide for their, the, those five families. And should I do that? Or is it just a, an asshole move to, to, to appease my vanity because I want to win an award with that thing and just kind of then put five people out of job, 20 people out of job. Right. And no, no, even talking about people on the client side that may lose their job if something sure. fails. But on my direct decision can can impact all those people. So we have to, to be very careful. In that. And and that is not something that you can learn or you can be coached or you have to to go with your gut and live with the consequences one way or another. Yeah. And it's being measured. But you're, as you say that, I have to think the counterbalance to that is you can't let that affect you to the point of paralysis where – You've lost your ability to be bold, to be impetuous, to take a risk. They look at you and say, all right, I, I'm putting the, the, the food that my kids eat every day are on your hands. My mortgage is, is in your hands. And I, if you fail me, I'm, I'm fucked. And you have to make those decisions. And I think there's, there's the risk of paralysis, of being petrified by those by by the, the the weight of those decisions and there's the other risk that is um, recklessness that goes back to the romantic side of the business we we all this entire generation that is working right now on higher or lower levels we all grew up in the business hearing things about oh it's the all the idea is the only thing that matters and and the work is the only thing that matters that's that's bullshit that's the number one most um dangerous idea that we put in our in in these in this industry i have never seen an agency be successful with great work and not worrying about anything else. All the agencies, all the the brilliant icons of this industry that say the only the only thing that that matter are the ideas and the work, they're only saying that because the business is well taken care of. They just don't talk about it. But that's very irresponsible. Because then there will be someone on the other side hearing that that bullshit and like, okay, that person said that. So I'm going to do the work and the work is going to save me. And then they don't have money to pay. To, they, they, they cannot make uh, a paycheck. And then the agency closes. I know a lot of people who with a lot of potential, brilliant ideas and amazing careers that decided to, to do their thing because they felt like I, I'm going to do it my way because I'm being stuck. I'm being um, 
shackled by these bureaucratic norms of these agencies. And now I'm going to start my own thing because I can do exactly the way I want. And usually that means I'm going to go all the way in and take all the risk for the work and everything. Then the business suffers. What happens? You close. Yeah. Right? I have never seen an agency close because they had bad ideas. They may not grow. Bad work may keep you alive in a mediocre way forever, but they close because of bad business. What I mean is not that it's to go, we need to go the other way, but it's, it's, we need to be more responsible about how we, t- we talk about these things. And like, yeah, you need a balance. It's the yin and yang of this thing. You need the business and the work to be healthy, to be uh, forward thinking, to be moving forward. If you have only one of those things, you're going to break. This is the hottest start to an episode in podcast history. I want to back up. We're going to work our way back up okay. to this point. Um, this is the first time we're meeting each other. I researched you in advance of this conversation. My first establishing question for you is, did you lose like 70 pounds in the last year? Because I was looking at pretty recent pictures of you where you were double the size that you are the person yeah, sitting in I, front I of me. I lost like 110 pounds. Whoa. 110 pounds, which is exactly the the weight of my 12-year-old son. I have a photo <laughs> with both of us wearing together one of my old jackets. You're a San and Francisco a, guy. Is this a bulletproof coffee thing? <laughs> no, it's, I was, it was a crazy thing. It was fear of, of dying. Yeah. And, and I felt like, and I need to take care of, of, of my body. My body is just going the wrong direction. My father died when he was 49. And I turned 46 this year. It's like, oh, I'm getting very, very close. And I'm, I'm gaining weight very, very fast as well. How old were you when your father passed away? Um, I was like 21 or so. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was early. I just think back to being a kid and acquaintances and family friends passing away in their late 40s, you know, mid 50s. And as a kid, you think to yourself, well, at least they lived a nice full life. Yeah, it was like, and now you get a little older, and you're like, man, you, you know, what a ripoff! I was so so young. Of course, it was my father. I thought he was young, but because I didn't want him to die, sure, at that point. But you didn't realize how young 49 was yeah, until 49 now. 49 for me wasn't kind of 49. I'm like, oh, it's I'm, I have so much ahead. I feel like I don't want to do it. My son is 12 years old. I'm, I I have a lot of live, uh, a lot of life to live. Yeah. Man. Well, before you even came to the U.S., you had. Uh, you know, you you started your career in Brazil and, and had an incredible career. And I think for a lot of younger creatives, they don't know about Brazilian marketing in the mid '90s and what that meant, and sort of the the legend and folklore surrounding Brazil advertising and its effect on global marketing during that time period. Can you just give us a little bit of a snapshot of that? And there are two parts of it. Is the one advertising in Brazil is a at least at that time, it was a like a pop co- had a pop culture element. If you're a big ad guy, you you would be in talk shows. Right. Like there's a uh, there's a song in Brazil that still to this day uh, still plays in in weddings and parties. Is it is named after an agency. Imagine, and it was from a big a big. Imagine if James Brown woke up to you know James James Brown was alive. You know was. We're back to James Brown time, and he he created a song called um, "Sachi and Sachi." Hello, Sachi was the name of the song, right. and the the chorus of the song was saying the name of the agency. 
It happened in Brazil. Like one of the biggest musicians in the history of the country composed a song named after a, an advertising agency. That was like how big in culture it was. And, and it was very, it was getting more and more influential in the world when, when I had my agency there. So I had one job in advertising, that agency that hired me. Then I left three years later with one of the founders uh, of that agency. They sold it to DDB and they invested in my agency as well. They couldn't do it, but they could invest on it. So they invested in the agency with me. I started my own agency. I was 25. This is Isobar. That's the agency that got sold to Isobar. It was called Agencia Click at that point. Okay. And it was me and kind of and three other partners, and um, and I remember my when I was talking to to still kind of trying to understand if the the, the partnership was going to <clears throat> going to work, and then uh, my, the, the guy that became the CEO of of that company, Pedro, he he asked me, so what do you what do you want to do? What is what do you want to do? I feel like yeah, I think I want to be build the most awarded interactive agency in the world. It's like this big bravado this 25 year old that had no clue what I was saying and he kind of laughed at me and said okay I, 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 it's cute I, I like the ambition fine we started the agency and um, it was I think October November and in June can happen we won a Grand Prix and we're the most awarded agency in the world and I had no dimension of what that meant I, I I didn't understand what was happening. I felt like, yeah, I've just put that crazy goal ahead. So let's let's try to do it, and, and it happened. It, which is kind of an interesting. Did it mean just as much less or more back then than it does now? It was more important back back then because there really? were less categories. Right. So just being the most in, the most awarded interactive agency in the world that means that that meant that I can do. You had um, press and poster that's kind of everything that is printed out of home and, and print you had film and you had interactive so like a third of <laughs> of the glamour was was given to that one agency right. that was like the interactive agency of the year it would be if they had that thing it's, and, I, we, and we got that with an agency that was six seven months old and I was 25 let's talk about your move from Brazil to the US mm-hmm. Uh, what was the year and and what was the motivation? The year was early 2000s, uh, maybe 2002, something like that. Let me see. I've been here for 15 years, so it's yeah, it's in like 2005. 2005 was the year. Okay. Um, and and the motivation was I always thought about living abroad was a, kind of a, a dream of mine, but I. I Put it on the side. I once I started my agency there, I felt like it wasn't going to happen anymore because I now I had too much committed. But the the reality, what changed the game for me is that Brazil and São Paulo, in particular, and Rio, started to be to get too violent. And we, my wife and I got got involved in an incident, like with people holding guns at us and kind of kind of doing like this flash kidnap, hijacking thing, and and. And I feel like I cannot like Fuck I, this. I think we got like yeah. PTSD after that, and I couldn't I couldn't drive on the street anymore after that because it was like in so much fear that I feel like I cannot. It's not that I 
dislike the country and I think that it's not a judgment. It was more like I cannot handle it anymore. And it was about that time, I remember my office in Sao Paulo had like four offices in, in the agency, but the Sao Paulo office had exactly 100 people and 20 of us had, in six months, 20 of us had had a gun pointed at us. Two got shot. So it was it was really bad. And for like I had to get out of here, you know, I wanted to start a family, have a kid and everything. And, and I, I don't want to raise a kid here. So we, we decided to move and started to ask around. And all of a sudden, kind of a, a, an invitation an invite happened and, and I moved to San Francisco. Yeah. Was it a smooth transition or did you experience culture shock? It was it was horrible. Like my the first year <laughs> I arrived you, you what was the agency about, by the way? It was AKQA. Okay. Um, it was and uh, they the, the the they they invited me to you know you can't go to any office or open an office you do whatever you want. So what do you want to do? And uh, I ended up picking San Francisco because it was the headquarter because the big office had good business like it was it was a good decision. I love San Francisco. Um but the the you're talking about the Bra- Brazilian influence in the '90s and the early 2000s and everything. I came. I was at that year. It was the year that that I was invited to be president of the jury at Cannes for the first time, and it was a huge deal. It was only three categories, so only three people were sitting every year. They are kind of defining the direction of where the industry should go, and and they invited me. I was. 20, 24, 25 was like the youngest president ever. And it's like, I was like, oh, this is so cool. I'm like the hottest thing. Child prodigy, yeah. And and, uh, and I got in, I, I, I arrived like with a very clear mission of teaching Americans how to do ads like Brazil, Brazilians. How'd that go? It was a disaster. <laughs> it was a disaster because first, because the the entire country, everyone around me immediately rejected. It's like, fuck you, little Brazilian. You kind of, the thing that you do there kind of was cool, but now you're in the big league. Let's see if you can play here. How was your English when you showed up? It was, it was bad. I thought it was awesome. But I, the, uh, my CCO and my ECD in, in San Francisco here, they, they, they were the first people that I, that I hired. At AKQA, they're still working with me. They said I couldn't understand a single word you said when you when you interviewed me. But there's something on your enthusiasm that I felt like I maybe maybe he knows what he's doing. So that's when I I it really the idea of diversity really connected to me, and how it was a, the day that I felt in my guts that that the thinking outside of the box it wasn't just jargon is like the box. Your box is the life they have lived up to that point. And it, all, all the things that seem very normal for you and people around you. But when you combine people who have lived other things, other lives, and other boxes, and you put them together, that is the recipe for group creativity. It's just bring people that are absolutely different. Because the chances of you coming up with something original as a team are infinitely higher. But I, I asked you about the language barrier because I think – a lot of employers have been guilty of not hiring somebody and they gave a certain reason, but the real reason is on the basis that their English isn't strong and they worry that the effort required to communicate may not be worth the potential talent that they're unlocking there. No one wants to admit that, but yeah. have, have you observed that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the first the first year I was I had a headache every day when I was coming home. It was very difficult for me and I could tell that people – around me did not like this idea. They feel like it's too much work 
to to have a conversation with these guys that cannot kind of coordinate three thoughts. Um, and I have hired a lot of people from other countries myself, and and I know because of my history that it's like, yeah, it's going to be like, the first year is going to be tough, and we're going to need to count that they are going to be not going to operate at their highest because of that. So I need to count that I'm hiring them, knowing that for a while I'm going to have like thirty them operating at thirty percent because I want them operating at 100% one year later. So that is a, a but it's, if you're bringing the right people, it's worth it. But you gotta be prepared for that. If you're, if you're hiring foreigners, expecting them to, to be, just get, hit the ground and, and, and operate at the highest level, you're, you're just fooling yourself. It takes one year for people to, to get comfortable enough to start to get kind of good stuff out of the door. How long at AKQA before you decide to start your own company? Um, it took me three years there, but I I arrived knowing that I was going to do it. Right. And you had I, done it in Brazil, so yeah. that, it was in your heart. Yeah, I had like 400 people working under me. So like AKQA, the office there when I joined was 30 people. So it's like, hey, this is a small thing. I, I purposely picked a challenge that I felt that was easy to manage because I know that it was going to be difficult. I just didn't know how difficult it was. You going just to wanted be. someone to pay your moving costs. No, I, I I wanted to make sure that I wasn't putting myself in a in a incompetent zone. Right. You know, if like if I'm overqualified in a certain way and then underqualified in another, like I'm overqualified in in my experience in my the size of the company and everything, but underqualified in the English and knowing the market and everything, maybe the average can can be worth paying my salary and they wouldn't fire me. <laughs> right. You know, and 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 that's how I that's but but I had the plan to to spend three years in San Francisco, then go to to China for two or three, then to London for two or three, and then land in New York, uh, having worked in all major markets. But then I fell in love with San Francisco, didn't leave until now recently. Like, oh, no, and how, how did it. you? How did you? Did your partner find you, or did you find your partner? Uh, we started like one week apart at AKQA, yeah. and we. We, the, it was funny. The day that we saw each other, we got introduced, and we had the exact same reaction. It was absolute hate. I couldn't stand him without— Odell's an account guy or a strategist uh, at that uh, point? An account guy. Yeah. And I, before I even heard a single word from, from, his, from his mouth, I hated the guy, and he hated me. And if we could both see that— Oh, that is the person that is going to try to tell me what to do. <laughs> and we we couldn't stand each other up to the point that like a few weeks later we sa- we had to work together because, you know, we re- I had he he needed to do his work well for me to succeed and and vice versa. And it was amazing cuz he could do things that I couldn't and then later down the road 3 years later my agency in Brazil got sold to the same group that bought his that is Isobar. And then if I like, yeah, we are like cousins in an odd way. Maybe we should do something together. For like, yeah, yeah, it's a kind of funny thing. Yeah, maybe we should. And, and the maybe we should started as a joke, and and eventually figured, no, we definitely should. Let's do it. And we 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 did it. That's fifteen years. You still hate each other? No, no, we kind of uh, we are okay with each other. <laughs> no, we 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 I I I love him, and 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 I think that. Because we both had agencies before, we both had partners before, we are a little bit more, we know how to do it. 
So like we don't hang out a lot all the time, you know, outside of the agency because we know that in the beginning is there's this pressure to to get close and become close friends and everything. And we know that we have seen what happens that you do it and then you get really sick of each other. You cannot can you cannot stand see each other anymore. And that that's when business goes sour. So we we did a good job of of protecting ourselves in our relationship to you know, let's keep it professional and we work together and I really like him he likes me as well but we keep some separation outside of the agency so we don't don't get sick of each other we disagree I'll say 60% of the times but the I think that the trick for the longevity of the the relationship is that we put a very clear lend, uh, uh, line in the sand that I was talking about the the responsibility of how you have to balance the work and the business. That is the line of the sand that we 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 decided for. It's like he takes care of the business, I take care of the work. Any decision, so we have equal shares or whatever, equal power. But any decision that is work, no matter how much we disagree, I have the last word. With any decision that has to do with, with the business, no matter what I think, I can try to convince him. But if I cannot, it's his decision. And even if he decides for something that I'm against, I will have his back and he's going to have mine. You talked about clients and a big part of your job is cultivating relationships with clients um, and at the CMO level especially – uh, showing up for the right meetings, understand the role you play in the room, and that's certainly changed from 15 years ago to today. Now you have trusted, you know, creative leaders around you who can carry some of that water in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, but does that part of the job come easy to you? Um, do you enjoy that part of the job, the the cultivation of relationships at the CMO level, and and understanding um, how that can potentially translate to sort of a lubricant to sell bolder, more interesting, and disruptive work? Mm. I. I I'll say that yes and no because I I am not a I'm a I'm a shy and introvert person, so I don't I'm not very good with small talk. So the entertaining side, the real if when you talk about the going out, and dining and and going to for drinks and everything, I I I cannot do that. That but the good news is that Andrew is great on that. He loves it. He thrives at that. Yeah. So he does that part of the job. When we have to sit down and have conversations about the future, about ideas, about what needs to be done, I'd love that. So I I I have like the social side of the conversations, the, the emotional side of the relationship to Andrew. And I and I have some of the, the deeper conversation on what are the possibilities? What are the opportunities? What should we be doing on, with the work? And um, and that kind of helps as well. It, it's another, uh, just another thing that we we complement each other. You know, we 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 have each other's back, and and it, that's that's good. But I I don't like the the glamour, yeah, of of the business and the. You're not a schmoozer. I'm not a schmoozer whatsoever. Yeah, which brings me to the real reason that I brought you here today, PJ. Let's talk about. <laughs> Branded entertainment. I think it's a space that, you know, you're one of a handful of real pioneers in branded entertainment in our industry. I think before I, I ask you some questions on it, maybe we just start by defining our terms a little bit. Okay. You know, when people ask you what is branded entertainment, you know, what do you tell them? It's the 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 closest. Not a very precise thing, but the closest for me thing for me is is an ad that is as worth the client's money as it is worth 
the consumer's time. Yeah, I mean, I guess, is it, I think when people think about branded entertainment, it feels like, does that mean it's a movie? Does that mean it's a show? What is that? What is that criteria that makes it more than a traditional advertisement and, and thrust it into this different title? I think for me is is that simple. It's like it needs to be worth the, the you know, we are we have always seen ourselves as a business we are like a banker, right? The, the client put invest some money, we need to give them more money back. The return on investment of money that they put is this is what the business is. And I'm saying that we now we have this other responsibility that Someone on the other side is going to be putting their time. That time needs to be rewarded. It needs to be that the, if it's three seconds or if it's three hours, it needs to have been worth that time that they put. All right. So based on what you're saying, you would disagree with the theory that most advertising creatives secretly wish they were making TV and film for a living. And so they've created branded entertainment as a way to satisfy their insecurity and vanity. I I agree with that. Oh, <laughs> you do. Okay. I think that most of us deep inside wanted to be filmmakers, and we felt like this is the the closest we could find, right? Um, and then some of us realized that, you know, we landed actually landed something really fun as well. Yeah. Some don't, and they get bitter and cynical and jaded, and they cannot live with the fact that they are frustrated filmmakers, and and they will never make it. You know, I'm I'm on the the first group. I I enjoy what what I'm doing, and and I enjoy the advertising the the advertising side of it. And it's in a ironic twist. I think that that's probably what allowed me to to get into the entertainment world and start to do things beyond what's classically seen as an ad. Yeah, you guys have created you know multiple pieces of long form content that have helped shape and define branded entertainment over the past decade. Um, you know, namely, uh, um, well, one example being Lo and Behold, Reveries of a Connected World for NetScout, uh, directed by Werner Herzog. Did you get a good Werner Herzog story out of that experience? Yeah, there was there was a, a funny moment where the the ECD of, of the New York office um, was um, talking to him. It's like, yeah, it was. We were originally we wanted to do it as a series of of shorter pieces that combine together and and one day you know he he's the one who's like maybe you could do a movie about that, uh, turn that into a feature film how what do you think and and no he didn't say what do you think maybe you should do a feature film and uh, and and Dave said oh no you oh that's interesting let me talk to the client and and ask what he thinks and he said you don't understand i'm taking this and I'm gonna make a film with it. If you don't want it, I'm gonna be in the mountains with a with a gun. And if you show anywhere close to me, I'm gonna shoot you. <laughs> so we're making a movie. So we are making a movie. Yeah. So, and and I remember kind of later we there was kind of saw the first cut, and I saw this, oh, this is amazing. It's kind of pretty. It's, it's pretty impressive when some, when you see something turn out kind of better than you expected. I kind of made like four or five little notes. I'm like, how about you, you do this on kind of the beginning? Because if people were watching this online, this beginning could be slightly different. And how about this? And then I send like a list of like five or six things, send it to them. Then they, they send the, the, the answer back. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you have a client who has certain needs and is going through the process of assessing a full-length film 
as a piece of advertising messaging for the first time. So you're guiding them through that process and they must be scared and they must be wondering and they must, you know, and on the other side, you have one of the most sort of bullish, resolute directors of our time and he wants his film to be represented a certain way. Tell me about the balancing act of that. It's 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 all in the preparation. When we got into it, it's like, yeah, this is the deal. It's Werner Herzog, a genius. You cannot you, you can say whatever he wants, but he needs to have real creative freedom on this. If we disagree with him, either you client or us agency disagree with him, he wins on the execution yeah. of the thing itself. We have to protect, the space that we have is the space around it, the promotion of the movie, how we talk about it, the PR and everything, and that is the space. And we we got in, in, in into it having a very clear sense of, of how that was going to play. And so we were not surprised when, when it started to happen and, and there's we were okay with it. You know, all right, yeah. we cannot change the, the film. And guess what? His opinion is better than ours. So let's let him do it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Werner, can you just mention uh, uh, NetScout uh, four <laughs> times during the film? It's like, this man will strangle me if I ask him to do this. Yeah. But it, it actually he actually would. So yeah, it, he actually would strangle. It begs it begs a question, though, which is, you know, when we create traditional advertising, the agency has a tremendous amount of control. Um, but in order to achieve great branded entertainment, but in order to achieve great branded entertainment that legitimately belongs alongside the best non-branded content in the world, should creative control be turned over to production companies who sort of possess that deep expertise and we trust them in their decision making? Or how much creative control should the agency retain as we sort of delve into this world that some view is beyond our expertise? I would say it's not turning the control to the to the production company. is sharing the control and the vision with the artists, which is very different. We didn't let the production company make decisions. We, we, we allowed Werner to make a decision. Right. It's like it's allowing the creative geniuses that we have a chance to work with to influence the work more. So I think that the, the, the brand entertainment space is, uh, we talked about the, the needs that the brands have. We talked about the, the, the needs that the audience has. But there's also a third group on these kind of Venn diagram that is the, the, the needs and the vision that the artists have. We need to give up control as an agency. So the, the voice of the, the, uh, of the audience is, is, more, is better represented. And, and so the voice of the, the artists are better represented because they are putting – they're making if – you're, if you're really doing brand entertainment, not an ad, it needs to be something that – that the artists are going to want, they're going to say, oh, this is good for me as well. It's kind of a good way for us. We, we know when we're up to something, when, when we start to reach out to directors and, and, and talent and, and they get excited, they want to do it, not because they're being paid, but because that's a character or there's a story that they want to, they want to participate. There's, um, I remember when we were shooting uh, one of the, the films that we did for Intel, one of the directors was having a. Uh, I I heard this story. I wasn't there. Kind of. So it seems that that one of the directors was having a a conversation with Harvey Keitel that played one of the main characters and having lunch to to talk about the character, 
And then how all of a sudden kind of they heard kind of someone knocking on the window at the restaurant and, and uh, someone just walked in with like a hat and everything. Just kind of, can I grab a chair? Grab a chair, sat down with them. It was Robert De Niro. And and they say, hey, what are you doing? And they can Harvey Keitel, in front of the director, Harvey Keitel started to tell Robert De Niro about the movie that he was doing. The movie was an ad for Intel. But for him, it was a movie, which is exactly what we wanted what we wanted to be. Like if the talent sees that as a story that they're excited and the character that you want to play, then you know that you're you're in a good space. Then you're not making a story about a product. You're making a story about human beings, about an idea that a pro- where a product is is a, an essential part of it, but it's not the, the subject. I mean, for me, the 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 best way to look at this when when I'm looking at a, at an, a new idea is like, can we see the, the 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 product or the brand there as a character in that story? Right. It's a story that is great and has a character. One of the main characters is the brand or the product. If it's yes, great. If the product is the subject, is the theme of the story, then it's not going to work because they only then it's unbalanced. It works too well for the the, the brand and not probably not enough for for consumers. Sometimes you watch something and you go, "Did anyone stop and just pose the question like, would I ever watch this? Yeah, I'm making this. I know the role of the brand in this. My clients will be happy. My clients will be happy until this fails. But we've all sort of created this this um, um, this delusion that this is the right solution somehow. Um, but if I was just on the couch and my choice was this or a documentary on Netflix or Succession on HBO, because branded entertainment needs to compete not with yeah. the best advertising content; it needs to compete with the best content. Has anyone posed the question like, and, would I watch this? And, and this is the, the the fundamental question. And if you think of of our industry and how it, it evolved, it it grew on on the cornerstone of what we do was built upon this idea that you can buy people's attention, right? right? So if you do it brilliantly, you may have an amazing result. But if you do very poorly, you're going to have a good result no matter what. Right. You can right? dis- you can disrupt your way into their heart because you buy their attention. Right. You buy their 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 seconds. What happens when you cannot no longer buy, or when the the chances to buy their time are radically cut and you and and people are not giving you that that opportunity anymore then you have to be interesting then you have to make them choose to to listen to you then you have to be way more uh you have to be worth their literally be worth their time which is why i think that this is not only the golden age of television but also the golden age of advertising because Creativity and taste has never been so critical. And and if you think and, and I think the same thing is true for, for CMOs. CMOs, there's a generation of CMOs that have abdicated of their responsibility for taste. If like, you know, I just need to to become the, the masters mm. of the technique, right? For a while when you could buy time, the technique is enough. Right. Right and and once you lose that technique, when the technique is not enough, 
and you're you're at a at a place that you need to to do things that you have to have that taste you haven't trained yourself taste is something you train you study and you don't have that you become just a cfo with bad spreadsheets right now there's a a group of among those kind of CMOs that really educated their taste, that really paid attention to what's great and what's not. And those are the ones that are prepared right now to, to be what companies need in a CMO more than anything, that is being the arbiters of taste in a, in a group of, of very co-decision makers, which I have nothing against co-decision making. But someone needs to have to represent the other side. Someone has to have to be the standard for taste. Someone is just to be able to raise their hand and say, this is great, this is beautiful, this is silly. And in a way that everyone around is going to, okay, he or she is saying that, it's probably true, and trust them. When CMOs behave and train themselves just like CFOs, they are abdicating of, of, of their own, own superpower. Yeah. And and I think that, that happened with an entire generation of CMOs out there. But there's a new generation coming in that that actually put big effort into into developing their taste. And those are the the Fernando Machados of the world. They're like kicking ass. There will always be case studies submitted to Can that are present beautifully as a two minute case study. But you do a little bit of research, and it turns out the whole idea is bullshit. I mean, that's that's yes. that's. That's a cottage industry within our within our industry. But for the most part, do you feel like the award circuit culminating in can is rewarding the right things, which is to say solving actual business problems with creativity rather than vanity creativity? Yeah, I think I've, I've been like, listen, I've been in jury rooms like those like for the last at least once a year for the last. 15 years for sure. The last three years I've been in, in a jury room at Cannes alone. And the discussions are very honest. The discussions are all a, a group of people, sometimes are clients and sometimes creatives. And they're all like, they're looking for what are the, the things that really made an impact. Every now and then something may, we may be fooled, sure. right? But in general, we are savvy enough to pick the the right ones. Uh, the same way that tonight, yeah, there there are agencies out there. They're specializing in creating amazing case studies that make the their their work feel bigger than it really was. But you know what? At some point, you start to realize that, and you start to look at the work that they have done in in a in a in a in a different way. So there is a a dysfunctional thing with case studies, but more and more ju the juries are looking to try to see what the 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 real work was. And I've seen like this year at Ken, for example, there are lots of times I feel like, yeah, this case study is great, but I want to see the work. And the 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 jury rooms are like, you know, but they submitted only the case study. For like, okay, now I now I really want to see the the, the work. And yeah. we made them push and bring the work and we saw sometimes for like, yeah, the work is actually better than the case study. And we elevated. Sometimes we're like, oh no, they they're just trying to fully we just we killed it. The the discussions are very um, focus on on very based on on what we are trying to do as as an industry overall. Like just make it worth the time for for consumers. Make it worth the money for for clients. And I think every client, everyone that I I've, I've known, every client, every marketer that I've been in, has been in a, in a jury room came back with a transformed 
point of view on what what award shows really are. For sure. I think that award shows, if there was like an association of of international award shows, they they could use a a good repositioning to show like, you know, we we are actually the best source of taste that you have. Instead of having to see everything, you can look at the things that are winning. And that could be an amazing way for you to educate your taste along your career. And because those decisions are very hard competitions among the best of the best in a concentrated uh, space and time. And it's the best way for us in the marketing industry to to study what and to study what what great work is. Now when you were president of Brandon Entertainment in 2017, you actually published a book of essays from that experience. That is a, a, a very unexpected and original outcome. How did that come about? It was like this. We came back. The, the jury was amazing. It was like the, the, the best jury experience I've ever had was that jury. And it was a very diverse group of people with different backgrounds, different countries, and some marketers, some media, some talent agents, some some creatives. And if like, oh, what do we do? We had some of, some of the most interesting discussions we have, we've ever seen uh, on this topic and for so many uh, different angles. And when we got there, we wanted the work to represent these discussions. And it did. Like the work that we picked was a representation of all those nuances that we were, all, all that that we were learning. Uh, for for everyone else, but we when you just look at the list alone, if like I think that although it represents our discussion, a lot of the the, the thought behind that and the the nuance and the, the the reasons may have got lost. So what if we get together and write this, and one each one of us kind of writes a different chapter, and we can organize and and see so there's not a lot of duplication. So I took the the responsibility of coordinating the work so there wasn't a lot of overlap and and distributed some of the chapters, and they all all went there, kind of wrote their own thing, whatever they thought they should be writing on that the topic, and and we we put it together and it worked. And you cut the pie 10 ways that everyone got rich. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Now, we donated all the money for... um, the for for advertising programs in in um, underserved communities together with the four A's. And the book is called The Art of Branded Entertainment. Exactly. And if it's wanna, still available on Amazon and yeah, it's a great book. So you go there, buy it, buy two hundred copies, donate, give to other people and you and all that money is going to to bringing new people to this industry, people that are not uh, may not be the kind that will be able to afford going to a portfolio school so they can enter in these in in these industry and being just more people of the same kind. Yeah. I end every episode with the same three questions. First, what is a word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl? I mean my first thought is best practices because that's <laughs> what leads to Repetition, right? This is the essence of repetition, with, but with glamour. So someone says best practices in a room, and you're I just like, oh, God. that's like then, then you, that's when you don't need us. But I think that, but that is a a, a a rational thing. The one that really gets a visceral reaction is ideation. <laughs> I hate ideation. You don't see policemen talking about arrestation. You don't see firemen talking about fire fighting station you don't see doctor talking about doctoration why should we ideate it's no it's the job it's like we are working 
and ideation feels like it's just it man i it's, it's that that makes my skin crawl it's, I, and i it's hard to explain how no you how i much. think you just explained it perfectly uh in a presentation of your work to clients what is at any point in your career what is the most mortifying response you've ever received to some work that you've presented what else <laughs> <laughs> Good what one. else do you have? It happened like twice and it's like, oh, shit. Yeah. And finally, that's a great one. And finally, uh, the last question I call the one that got away. Again, from any point in your career, we've got these ideas in our heads and sometimes we present them and clients don't love them or sometimes they they die on the cutting room floor. But what is that one idea that's stuck with you that's just continued to live in your heart? You've never been quite able to sell it or it's never quite made sense for the right client at the right time. But man, if you could just get that thing made. I I I have a, a drawer with ideas that I still I still want to do it, but there's one in particular that that's like uh, this is I'm I'm not gonna rest until this one is done. But it's a a is a VR story. It's a story that can only live in VR. It's like without VR, it's not. It's, but it's a love story told in 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 a, in a VR setting. That it's it's scary at some point. It's frightening, but you know it's love story. Love should be scary, so you can see some of the value as well when you're telling that story. Seems like you're going to be able to get that one made. Someone wants that. I've been I've been pushing and trying to fight for that for the last. Four years, I still haven't found. I I found a lot of people that said I love it, but no way I can pull that off. But at some point, you will. I'm I sh- I know that it will. The one day you're gonna see it. If oh, that's the one. That's the VR love story. All right, PJ. I've admired your career for a long time, and um and I admire your sort of uh, resistance to stagnation and your engine. Um, and constantly driving the industry forward, and I just appreciate you joining me here today, man. Thank you. you. Know, it's it's a pleasure. It's the the this industry has given me so much, and and having a chance to contribute a little bit to to its progress is an honor. Cool, man. Thanks. Okay, thank you to the great PJ Pereira. Thank you to JSM Music and the dapper, dashing, talented. Just all-around good guy, executive producer of this podcast, Mr. Jeff Fiorello. And if you are liking the pod, please do the thing that I always ask you to do, which is subscribe, tell a friend about it, leave a nice review. And until we talk again, peace. Peace.